Don joined Creation Ministries in um, Brisbane in Australia in uh, 1994 and he's spoken around the world on the creation issue and uh, just to prove the point he's only just got back into Australia after spending time in uh, the UK and uh, so he's only just got back Wednesday on a tour over there um, speaking and so it's it's wonderful that he's come back and here tonight and if he's jet lagged you'll know why um, the other thing that he's done is been part of writing books um, and uh, contributing to different books. He's a co-author of The Answers book, which you'll be able to see um, up the back, and um, One Blood, and Answers to the Big Four Questions and 15 Reasons to Take Genesis as History. And he's also uh, authored a number of other um, different brochures as well. And um, tonight he's going to be talking to us about answering uh, life's big questions. And I, I don't think um, tonight, as we gather, we could get more of a core um, topic for us all to consider tonight, answers to life's core questions. And so it's great that you've come, uh, Don, and we want to welcome you. Why don't, we, why don't we welcome Don, and in a moment we'll pray together. So welcome, Don. It's great. Thank you for coming, and let's pray as we open. God, we thank you. We thank you for our minds and our ability to think through and reason. God, we thank you for your word, your word that uh, is infallible and speaks to us and guides us. God, thank you that tonight we can come and hear uh, Don and as he shares with us about who you are and the answers to life's biggest questions. Lord, we pray that as we listen, we'll have open hearts and that you would speak to us tonight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. I do have this turned on, yes. Um, usually the speaker gets it wrong and everybody blames the guy up the back. And uh, <laughs> it's usually the guy at the front that's at fault when the PA doesn't work. But uh, it's good to be with you tonight and uh, thanks for coming along and I just pray that it'll be a time of encouragement for you. Uh, possibly some people it might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, others maybe. Um, and equipping also to enable you to share your faith with others. Um, now we, uh, in terms of answering questions, uh, we have a, a major website which has over 6,000 articles and six days out of seven there are new articles and uh, when there are topical issues in the media, you'll find an article about those issues on the website more often than not. And if you'd like to be informed about those articles because, well, you can make our website your homepage, that'd be a good start, but if you don't if you're too busy, you don't look at your computer every day and you want to be reminded of some of those good articles, uh, there are actually, uh, we do have a, an Infobytes, which is an email news, and it looks a bit like this, um, different every time. Of course, it comes out about every 10 days. If you'd like to be informed about some of the more um, topical articles that are on there that we think people should be aware of, then uh, you can sign up for that uh, email news, and there's a form that looks like that, that uh, Bruce is there somewhere. Um, uh, thanks Bruce uh, uh, Bruce has been very helpful in sort of helping me this weekend which is just wonderful uh, and uh, keeping me awake when appropriate <laughs> so uh, or waking me up when appropriate and uh, thank him for his hospitality for the weekend but um, what are the life's three big questions and uh, well I'd suggest that where did I come from why am I here and where am I going 
might just about encompass life's three big questions, the big questions of life. I don't think anybody would probably disagree with that. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Because where I, where I came from affects the answer to the other questions, doesn't it? Um, if I, uh, where I came from affects the question of why I'm here and also where I'm going. Now, as a Christian, I take the Bible as the Word of God from the beginning, and that means that uh, the words are inspired by the Creator, the one who made everything, the one who knows everything, and the one who doesn't make mistakes. So consequently, I take the Bible as my reference book in working out where I came from and why I'm here and where am I going. And uh, I didn't always take that view. There was a time when, uh, even as a Christian, I didn't realise it, but I didn't really believe the Bible fully, and particularly when it came to the issue of creation in Genesis. But I came to understand that, um, as Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken, and that means everything the Bible talks about is true. That doesn't mean we necessarily understand everything, but I came to understand the Bible had to be the basis of my thinking in all areas about where we came from and, uh, and everything. And uh, somebody suggested that Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. <clears throat> I think that's probably pretty appropriate. Well, where do we come from? The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, a well-known verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I must say that in terms of our three questions tonight, the first question is getting a lot of treatment, right? So, the, so don't worry that um, it seems like we're going to be here till tomorrow night. Uh, the second and third questions will be much, quicker, much more quickly answered. So the question, where do we come from? The Bible tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But today we're told, no, 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 God didn't create things. They just made themselves. There was a big bang where nothing exploded and here we all are. We're a cosmic accident. And of course a cosmic accident has no purpose. In fact, uh, Julian Huxley, who was head of UNESCO, said this, in the evolutionary pattern of thought, there is no longer either need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created, it evolved. So did all the animals and plants that inhabit it, including our human cells, mind and soul, as well as brain and body. So did religion. Religion evolved. God evolved. Everything evolved. Everything just made itself. There was no creator involved. And this is the evolutionary pattern of thought. Evolution, narrowly speaking, is biological evolution, of course, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the big picture evolution is that everything just made itself. Nature is all there is. In fact, God is the figment of our imagination. And this is the big picture evolutionary worldview that Julian Huxley is talking about. What we're talking about here is a three-stranded rope, if you like. Originally, there was the idea that the solar system made itself. That was the first... Uh, part of the rope and then there's the idea that the earth the rocks and everything made themselves and then of course following that following the idea that this happened over eons of time was the idea that biology uh, also made itself all living things made themselves by natural processes by bi biological evolution and that was Darwin's contribution to naturalism that nature is all there is well this whole idea that the universe popped into existence by a big bang uh, is rather illogical when you think about it because the most established principle of logic which applies to science particularly is that something which has a beginning has a sufficient cause. 
but the uh, universe supposedly popped into existence from a big bang where nothing exploded without any cause whatsoever and became everything. You say, well, surely they believe there was something there to begin with. Well, they say there was a quantum fluctuation. But what fluctuated? was a singularity. What is a singularity? A singularity is a point with no length, breadth or depth, which is nothing. <clears throat> so they hide behind uh, technical words which make, make it sound like they know what they're talking about. In fact, here's a statement which summarises the views of Alan Guth, who's one of the recognised experts in the Big Bang. The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. Like this cartoon, let me get this straight, first there was nothing, then it exploded. Now... Of course, if you believe that there's an almighty creator who is all-powerful and has always been there and who is capable of speaking the universe into existence, that takes faith. But to believe that nothing could explode without any cause whatsoever and create everything without any sufficient cause, that takes no faith whatsoever, does it? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, frankly. <laughs> In fact, the first element to form in the Big Bang was hydrogen. And hydrogen stars exploded. They were the first supernovas. And these supernovas exploding forced hydrogen atoms together to form heavier elements like lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, and all the elements of the periodic table that you learnt in high school and have since forgotten. Or maybe some of you have yet to learn it in high school and then will forget it. Unless you're a chemist, you might remember it. Well, then uh, these heavier elements form stars and galaxies like the galaxies we know today. Ultimately, our, our solar system formed in the Earth all by itself without any cause, just by natural processes, so the story goes. And then the Earth cooled down enough to form water. And in that water, chemicals assembled themselves into the first living thing. The first living thing, like a bacterium or pond scum or something, and that changed itself into all the living things on earth, including you and me, duckweed in the pond, mango trees, elephants and mice, all made themselves by natural process of biological evolution. In other words, what they're saying effectively is this. Now, students, hydrogen is a gas which, if left long enough, turns into people. Well... The Bible says in Psalm 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In fact, this whole idea that everything made itself robs God, the creator of his glory, that's due to him for his creation. And it's ultimate blasphemy to say that what he made just made itself. The sad thing is that many people in the church, and I used to be one of these, I must say, seem, seem to think that we must make the Bible fit this whole scenario and so we look at our universities and our professors and so on we say well they can't all be wrong you know they're, they're learned gentlemen and women and so we must take what they say and we've got to make our faith fit what they tell what they tell us so all sorts of schemes have been dreamt up to make the Bible fit this scenario a scenario which is actually designed to get rid of God that's what it was invented for to get rid of God. So 
So all sorts of ideas have been uh, put forward and here are some of them. The gap theory posits that there's a gap between the first couple of verses of Genesis and into that gap you fill all, put, all, put all the millions of years of fossils and everything um, into that gap. Now, by the way, in the Hebrew there's no gap. In fact, the structure of the Hebrew precludes or, or makes it impossible to put a gap in there. But it solves nothing anyway, as I'll explain in a minute. And then there's the day-age idea, the idea that the days are long periods of time and uh, people would say, well, you know, with the Lord, a day is a thousand years and so we make the days into long periods of time and that stretches everything out so we fit all the millions of years into the Bible. Of course, if you make each day a thousand years, it doesn't go, go very far towards billions of years that they talk about. But nevertheless, the idea is we can just make the days whatever we like. And then uh, into that idea comes the idea, well, okay, well, it's a bit hard to believe that people just made themselves by some sort of an evolutionary process. So we'll say that God created people and uh, maybe created other things along the way that are a bit hard to believe just made themselves. And so every now and then God stepped in over the millions of years and created a few things along the way and, uh, and then we go further and people say well wasn't God clever to invent evolution so he perhaps lit the fuse of the big bang and then everything just made itself and, uh, and then there's the idea that the framework hypothesis uh, this is very popular sadly in uh, theological colleges which were once very conservative nowadays of teaching this idea that well you see Genesis wasn't meant to be taken as straightforward history it's a theological statement, it's a polemic, it's, it's whatever you like except it's not history. And, uh, and sadly this is very common in colleges which we would maybe respect as being evangelical. And then uh, there's, there's all these views take the view that Noah's flood, which the Bible says covered all the high mountains under the whole heavens, was actually a local flood. We'll talk about that in a few minutes too. Well, the trouble with all these schemes is what the, you see, to fit all these millions of years into the Bible has to come before people, before Adam and Eve, if they actually existed. And so if you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, here we have paradise, don't we, where everything's perfect, very good, as God said. And uh, so where are we where are we putting all these fossils and things in the rock layers of millions of years because well, the millions of years don't just sort of float out there on cloud nine somewhere they're supposed to be the rocks under our feet represent the millions of years and they contain dead things lots of dead things lots and lots of dead things like lots and lots and lots of dead things well you have to put them under Adam and Eve's feet in the Garden of Eden and that, that uh, fossil record is a record of death You've got to be dead to be a fossil. Not only that, but you find evidence of cancer. So there's suffering, things eating one another, and disease. All in the fossil record, under Adam and Eve's feet. And God said everything's very good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God said everything's very good. Well, is that very good? No, not very good at all. In fact, one of the big problems with all these schemes to marry the Bible with these millions of years is that it actually undoes the Bible's explanation of why there's bad stuff in the world. Anybody ever been asked, how can you believe in loving God when there's so much suffering in the world? Anybody been asked that? I can see that quite a few of you try to share your faith because that's the big question, isn't it? 
Why is there so much suffering in the world if God is good? In fact, I remember learning in Sunday school this hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, the Lord God Made Them All. Is everything bright and beautiful in today's world? Because I can imagine a child learning that hymn where everything's bright and beautiful and rosy and everything's lovely. And there's a lot of lovely stuff in today's world still. There's still a lot of lovely, lovely things, but a lot of nasty stuff too. In fact, the child could go home and find that grandma is dying of cancer. Or maybe worse, mum or dad's dying of cancer. Where is God in this? Why is there bad stuff if God is good? Well, the Bible tells us why there's bad stuff. But if all that death and suffering was happening before people came on the scene, then that's the way God created it. And that makes God an author of evil. But the Bible tells us that people, Adam and Eve, the first people created, were put in paradise, perfect, perfect place, no death, suffering and pain. And in fact, it was so good that they were vegetarian. They didn't have to kill animals to live. You think, well, that's radically different to today, isn't it? And uh, by the way, if you're feeling guilty about having chicken for tea, uh, there was permission given to people to eat meat after the flood, okay, so just relax. But originally, people were vegetarian. In fact, the animals were vegetarian also, it says in Genesis chapter 1. That's hard to imagine today. What happened? People was, Adam was told by God that if you live, want to live in paradise, the way I've all set it up, that's fine, you live forever. You've got access to the tree of life and you live forever in paradise. But you have a choice. You can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing magical about this tree, only that God said don't. What happens when someone says don't to you, you know? You want to do it, don't you? And that's our, our sin bent and that's what... Adam and Eve did. They ate the fruit and effectively rebelled against God. They only had one rule. How would you like to live life with one, one rule? Only one rule. No, no other rules, just one rule. Don't eat the fruit. Well, they ate the fruit and effectively told God, we don't want to do things your way, we want to do it our way. And God said, God gave them permission to do that. But he said, if you do that, then there'll be consequences. Death will come. And death came and much else. Death and suffering came because of sin. See, it says there that by the sweat of your brow you'll eat food. So struggle for survival came about because of sin. It wasn't there beforehand. You think about death itself, physical death. From dust you came and to dust you return. Now, when I was trying to believe some sort of evolutionary view of the Bible, I would have to say that Adam and Eve brought spiritual death into the world, not physical death. But you see, it says, from dust you came and to dust you return. It's talking about physical death. Came about because, not the spiritual death. Physical death came because of sin. And the woman's pain in childbirth would be increased to be very difficult. That's suffering. And other things like thorns and thistles grew and the snake would crawl on its belly. There were physical changes to the natural order of things. In fact, Romans chapter 8 talks about this and talks about the whole creation being in bondage to decay. It says it was subjected to futility in bondage to decay. Now, it wasn't created that way. It became that way because of sin. When we look at the world and see the bad stuff, we should say, wow, how bad is sin that the world is corrupted because of it? Now, God didn't leave it that way. He's had a plan of salvation. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Adam brought death into the world, Jesus is the last Adam, and he comes to undo the work of the first Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Who's a human? Put up your hand if you're human. Wow, almost 100%. That means you're in Adam. We're all descendants of Adam. But how do you get into Christ? Because it says those in Christ shall be made alive. Well, we're born physically into Adam, but we're born spiritually into Christ through the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. That's what the being born again is about. The birth of the Holy Spirit, reborn into Christ. And uh, the question is, which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Because if the first Adam didn't actually live really on the earth physically and didn't actually really sin and bring death and suffering into the world, what is the need for the last Adam? Jesus. There's no need for Jesus. So this is where the whole thing falls apart. And it's where I would say to have a consistent Christianity, we need to accept the history of Genesis. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, be, have to agree with me about this to be a Christian. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not saved by our consistency, in a sense, of our consistent thinking. Uh, we're saved by trusting Christ. But I can tell you, if you want a, a witness, a consistent witness in the world today, you need to believe Genesis as history. Otherwise, you don't have answers to these questions. There's only one approach to Genesis that actually makes sense of everything, the whole sweep of history in the Bible. Not just You can't isolate it. It actually affects, as we see there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what happened in Genesis affects the whole gospel. It's not something you can sort of cut off and, and uh, uh, quarantine and say, oh, we just don't worry about that. Because if, if that didn't happen, there's no need for Jesus. There's only one view that actually does justice to the whole sweep of history and the, and the course of salvation through the Bible, and that is that God created everything in six ordinary days. As we read there in Genesis, you don't have to be a, an expert to understand what it says. In fact, if you can't understand Genesis chapter 1, I don't think there's any other part of the Bible you could understand. You read it, it's straightforward. A five-year-old can understand it. It says there was evening and morning one day. There was evening and morning a second day. Evening and morning a third day. Evening and morning a fourth day, a fifth day. Evening and morning the sixth day, a seventh day of rest. Boy, they sound like long periods of time, don't they? No, of course, if you put a number with the word day in English, it's all. if I said to you it took me six days to drive here, I didn't drive, I flew, but just to just say, if it took me three days to drive here, you wouldn't think, oh, it took him three weeks, or it took him three years, or it took him three million years. I mean, as soon as you put a number with the word day, you know immediately it means just ordinary days. Well, that's what it's like in Genesis. And just in case we didn't get the picture... God actually inspired the writer to say there was an evening and a morning. Now, what sort of long period of time has an evening and a morning? It's plain as day what day means in Genesis chapter 1, and that is it's an ordinary day. In fact, that's why we have a week. God did stuff in a week. That's where it comes from. So this idea you can stretch out the days and make them long periods of time and all this sort of stuff, it doesn't wash. It just does not wash. And the idea that Genesis is poetry and we can make over what we like, it's not poetry. It's written in exactly the same fashion as Exodus and the rest of Genesis. In fact, the odd thing is that these people who say it's poetry uh, often will accept that Abraham was a real person. They don't accept that Adam was a real person. You say, well, 
Okay, well, Abraham was a real person. Who was his father? Well, that's back into the chapter 10, which is supposed to be poetry or mythology or not history. And his grandfather and all the way back to Adam. History's all there. You say, well, okay, that's all very nice, but well, how to explain all these dead things better on our feet? If it didn't happen over millions of years, how did they get there? Well, in fact, the Bible talks about an event which would have created stacks and stacks of fossils under our feet. And that's Noah's flood. The only problem is that oftentimes we mention Noah's flood and perhaps into our mind pops a sort of a fairy tale Noah's Ark, an overgrown bathtub with a couple of giraffe snakes sticking out the top and that sort of stuff. But in fact, the boat was a huge boat. Can you see the semi-trailer for scale? The Korean naval architects estimate it can carry 15,000 tonnes. That's a big bathtub, isn't it? 15,000 tonnes. And of course, what about the idea that this was a local flood that Noah built this boat to escape? What do you think about that idea? He built this huge boat to escape a local flood. I tell you what, he must have been a few sandwiches short of the full picnic to do that because he could have emigrated. And how can you float around for 371 days on a boat in a local flood? Because that's how long he was on the ark, 371 days. And you, you think about uh, the uh, history in Genesis and people say, but you know, always people living to be 900 years of, you can't believe that, you know, Methuselah, 969 years of age and all that. I mean, that's just mythological. You say, well, okay, um, let's have a look at those ages and let's graph out those ages and see if you see a pattern there. See if there's just, uh, because see, people later on in the Bible didn't live to be 900 years of age. In fact, if you graph out the ages from Adam through to Jacob, this is what it looks like, the age at death. You see that before the flood, uh, most of the people lived to be 900 years plus. In fact, Adam lived to be 930 and uh, well, over here, Enoch, what happened to him? He was translated, wasn't he? He was beamed up, so he didn't die. So he's a bit, a bit of an odd. He, he didn't have to live, so he didn't die, actually. Um, Lamech died just before the flood. Noah, sorry, Methuselah here, he's the oldest. He died in the year of the flood, just before the flood. <clears throat> and interestingly, his name in Hebrew means something like, when he dies, it shall come. Isn't it interesting? That's when you go into the Hebrew, you find that. And uh, so Noah would have known that Methuselah's name was a prophetic name. When he died, he would have known the flood was imminent. And so you see there's a pattern here. <clears throat> and after the flood, these ages declined progressively, not just in a step like this. You think, well, if that was the case, they'd change the number system, you know, and that's why we've got these big numbers. But the fact that they declined progressively like this indicates something biological happened at the time of the flood which accounted for the decline in ages after the flood. Now we can conjecture about what that might be and modern biology suggests how it could have happened. But that's another story and you can look it up on our website if you'd like to have a look. But um, you look up, if you look here at Babel, uh, this is at the, at the Tower of Babel, the, the, people still living over 200 years but then you get down to Abraham lived to be 175 before he died. And even by the time of Moses, he was 125 when he died. And the Bible says he was still strong at 125 years of age. And he just suddenly died. And uh, but see, there's a consistent pattern here which suggests historical reality, not some sort of mythology. Well, what would you expect if there was a big flood like the Bible talks about that covered the whole earth? Because if the, if the 
water cover the whole earth, you have currents of water, huge currents of water, because there's nothing, no barriers of continents stopping the water from moving, and you would have what they call hypercanes, or hundreds of kilometres an hour water currents raging over the land. Now, if you're floating up on top of it, you wouldn't really notice it much uh, in the arc, but the land surface would be eroded at a rapid rate, and you would change rock into mud in very fast process. If you've got all that mud being swirled around by the oceans, you've got exactly the conditions to form lots of fossils because you're going to bury stuff in the mud. And it's exactly what you find is stacks of things that have been rapidly buried, like this fish in the middle of lunch. How quickly was it buried to fossilise it? Very quickly. Now, if it died of indigestion, and, and see, school textbooks have stories about how fossils form, and they say, oh, well, when a fish dies, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and then you get a little bit of silt filtering down on top of it, and a long period of time it gets covered up, and then a long period of time it becomes a fossil, and millions of years, and all this sort of stuff, you know. It's not the real world. Anybody been snorkelling in their holidays? And you've seen all the dead fish lying on the bottom of the ocean, waiting to be fossilised? They don't exist. The real world is that when something dies in the ocean, it gets eaten by something else. And, you know, if anything doesn't get eaten and ends up on the bottom, there are crayfish walking around on the bottom of the ocean waiting for stuff to come down to eat. And they clean up anything that gets on the bottom. So the real world is there are no fish lying on the bottom of the ocean waiting to be fossilised. In fact, the only way you get something like this with all its scales and everything preserved intact is to bury it like that to stop it being eaten and decaying. In fact, here's another one. This is a jellyfish fossil. You know, Darwin said, no organism wholly soft could be preserved. Well, just think about a jellyfish. If it washed up on the beach, it just disintegrates in a matter of hours, doesn't it? If it died, how long would it last before it got covered up with a slow and gradual process? It couldn't be. See, Darwin had this thing from the geologists that rocks form slowly and gradually over millions of years. They'd dispense with the flood as a, as a rapid way of burying things. And so they had this idea that they wanted vast periods of time because their idea was that given vast periods of time, it was conceivable then, not conceivable now, it was conceivable then that evolution, biological evolution, could be feasible. The idea was given enough time, anything's possible. Anybody heard that idea? Given enough time, anything's possible? That is rubbish. Let me illustrate why. I've got a Commodore and I'd like a BMW. <laughs> Not there's anything wrong with Commodores, but, you know, a BMW is a bit of a step up. So I'm going to take a, a, you know, given enough time, anything's possible approach to getting a BMW. I stick my Commodore out in the weather. There's lots of energy beaming down on it. You've got all the matter there, all the stuff required to make a BMW, haven't you? And you've got lots of energy beaming down on it. Given enough time, it'll change into a BMW. Don't you think? Give it 100 years, it'll be a BMW. No, that's not enough time. Give it a million years, it'll be a BMW. No? Impossible, isn't it? See, not the idea that given enough time, anything is possible is rubbish. Absolute rubbish. The impossible never becomes possible by giving it more time. And that's what the problem with the origin of life and evolution is. It's an impossible process. And even given millions and billions of years, it won't work anyway. 
But anyway, they had all this idea. They wanted millions of years. They wanted huge periods of time because it made it seem more possible to believe that everything made itself. That's where it came from. And so Darwin plugs into this millions of years stuff and he says that something like a jellyfish could never be preserved. You know, jellyfish fossils have been found in a number of locations around the world. In fact, in South Australia, there's masses of them in the Flinders Ranges, which suggests what? The Flinders Ranges were deposited rapidly in a massive watery catastrophe. Not the millions of years scenario you read about in the National Parks brochures and stuff there. In fact, things like uh, Grand Canyon, they talk about it in terms of millions of years, 300 million years are laid in all the layers. But you know, when you look at the layers, you find evidence of rapid, massive, catastrophic deposition underwater. This gray layer at the top here, the Coconino Sandstone, covers 500,000 square kilometers in the United States. 100 metres thick. There are sand dune structures in it and geologists used to say that was a desert environment that formed the sand dunes. But then other layers were laid down in the water and then other layers had sand dune structures in them so they must have been a desert environment. And so we had the whole, all these layers up and down above the sea, below the sea, above the sea, below the sea several times to explain all these layers. Well that must take millions of years, mustn't it? Stuff like that doesn't happen overnight. Well, when you look at the actual sand dune structures in this, you find that the angles of the sand dunes indicate they weren't formed in dry sand in the desert, that they were wet sand being deposited underwater. In fact, very deep, very fast-flowing water to the extent that the whole lot, 500,000 square kilometres, 100 metres thick, would have been deposited in a matter of days. Nothing like that's happening on the earth today because we don't have a global flood happening today. And these things happen continent-wide. In fact, some of them cross from different continents. But you can go down layer after layer in the Grand Canyon. Every layer speaks of rapid, catastrophic deposition with no time in between. In fact, you can go and find a whole area where the whole lot is bent radically, a thing called a Kaibab upwarp. And if you try and bend hard rock, folks, even if you're Superman, hard rock, when you try to bend it, will crack and melt but only soft rock will bend without cracking and melting. In fact, the whole lot was still plasticine for it to be bent. The Kaibab upwall. South Australia, it's not South, not South, South Africa, the Cape Fold Mountains. Look at the radical bending, this stuff. Radical, you can find this in uh, the, the uh, McDonnell Ranges in, in Northern Territory, and you find it all over the place. Um, I saw it in, um, in Northern Ireland and Scotland radical bending of rocks that have been deposited underwater. Uh, you find things like this uh, in coal, which is supposed to form over millions of years in peat bog swamps. You find tree trunks buried in the coal. You find this in Victoria, in New South Wales. You find in uh, Northern Hemisphere, in Europe and England. This is in Wales. And uh, these tree trunks, the, this uh, peat bog swamp supposedly is formed where all the coal formed. But these tree trunks are things like pine trees that don't grow in peat bog swamps. And furthermore, the roots are broken off underneath. And when you actually excavate them, have a look, the roots are broken off. They didn't grow there. They were transported there. And how do you have something standing up there like that for millions of years while all the coal builds up around it in the peat bog swamp without any roots holding it up? See, it speaks of massive watery catastrophe. See, things like this. People in geography lessons in school, the kids are told, well, look at this creek here. It must have taken a long time to cut this big canyon. Millions of years. See, in great, doctrinating, 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 millions of years. 
Well, folks, that canyon was formed in less than a day at near Mount St. Helens Volcano in Washington State in the United States on March the 19th, 1982. And there's a DVD up there about Mount St. Helens talking about some of the incredible stuff that happened just like that because of this itty-bitty volcano. Now, we're talking about a global flood. We're talking about massive forces on the Earth. You see, it's not that there's no evidence for the flood on the Earth. There's plenty of evidence for the global flood of Noah's day. There's cultural evidence too. There's, you, know, you look at Australian Aborigines have stories about a big flood that only a few people survived and a few animals and there's a canoe and so on and a bird sent out and, and you know, elements of the biblical story. But uh, you get stories from the Chinese and the American Indians and all around the world. There's stories of being a big flood that only a few people survived. How come all those different peoples from all around the world have stories about a big flood that only a few survived? Because all people on earth are descendants of Noah and his family. That's why. And uh, of course, if you don't have writing, you get the story corrupted, but the stories are there. See, so look at Mars and they say, look at this big canyon system on Mars. Wow, that looks like it was carved by water. There must have been a flood on Mars once to carve that big canyon. Well, how much water is there on Mars? We've had a big probe up there recently looking for water and they might have found a little tiny bit of water but nothing like enough to have a flood. But people seriously believe there was a flood on Mars. What about Earth? Oh, no, no, there's never a flood on Earth. Where would all the water come from? See, it's not that there's no evidence for it. The reason people won't believe there's a flood on earth is because the Bible talks about it as God's judgment on sin. So it's the same reason people won't believe there's a creator. Because if there's a creator, he owns us and we're accountable to him. See, you make something, you own it, don't you? If God made us, he owns us. See, it's not a question of the evidence. It's a question of what sort of glasses you've got on, how you're willing to look at things. See, you can put on these secular glasses, a secular worldview which excludes God and excludes the Bible as a source of information about the past and you get a particular way of looking at things which excludes the flood, tries to interpret everything according to millions of years and everything or you can take a Christian worldview, take the Bible as your reference point you come up with a very different understanding of how things work and it makes, to me, makes much more sense. It takes a bit of rethinking of things but it makes a lot more sense in the end to think things God's way because he knows everything. I don't care how many scientists you want to stack up against God, I believe God. Now, scientists know nothing compared to God. Even put them all together, they know nothing compared to God. And we know a lot, but God knows a lot more. And uh, so why don't people accept the evidence that God is and that, you know, the flood and things like that? Well, it's like this. Richard Lewontin uh, professor of genetics at New York University in the United States said this, we take the side of science, by which he means this idea of naturalism and nature is all there is, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the fa is its failure to fulfil many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just so stories because we have a prior commitment to materialism. Moreover, that materialism is, is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, isn't that open-minded? Isn't science about leading, following the data wherever it leads, following the evidence wherever it leads? No, not when it comes to this stuff, it's not. It's a matter of excluding 
evidence which might lead people to God and to believe in the Bible. See, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The sad thing is that God would say that many of our academics at our universities are fools. That's a sobering thought because that's where we send our kids to get educated, isn't it? By fools. Are they ready for it? Are our kids ready to discern the nonsense they get taught amongst the good stuff? And the sad thing is, many of our churches are not preparing young people for the onslaught they'll get, not only in university, but even in high school. You can't bury your head in the sand and say, it doesn't matter. It's huge, hugely important, and it affects the whole Bible. But people say, but you know, you can't, you can't disbelieve carbon dating. That proves things are millions of years old. Well, if somebody says that, they don't know anything about the subject. Why do I say that? Because carbon dating only works on things that are thousands of years old. You see, when it comes to millions of years, other dating techniques are used. But with carbon dating, you know carbon dating is good evidence against millions of years. Why do I say that? Well, you know, you can take coal, which is supposed to be 300 million years old, and you can get it dated in a carbon dating laboratory at thousands of years old. What's wrong? Well, maybe the millions of years is wrong. They say, oh, no, no, it's due to contamination. No, no, you can check for contamination. There are ways of checking that's not contamination. But they say, well, you can get dinosaur fossils too. They're supposed to be at least 65 million years old, aren't they? Let's carbon date them. Yes, you get thousands of years for dinosaur fossils as well. In fact, almost anything with carbon in it, any fossil, you'll get thousands of years with carbon dating. In fact, diamonds. Diamonds are a crystal structure of carbon, aren't they? So you can't put carbon into a diamond after it's formed. There's no room for it. So you can't contaminate diamonds with carbon-14 after they're made. So when were the diamonds supposedly made? According to other dating systems, one to two billion years old these are supposed to be. Well, we can send them off. Would you like to donate your diamond rings, lady, and get them dated, carbon dated? I have to destroy them to do it. Is that okay? Well, you can date the rings with carbon dating and you get thousands of years. Now, you get 58,000 years, which is too many years, but that's because the carbon dating system is just assumes things which they, don't, they ignore the flood. You see. If you take into account the flood, it actually brings it back to 6,000 years uh, easily. But the thing is that even with their own assumptions, you get thousands of years for stuff that's supposed to be billions of years old. You think about uh, fossils. Uh, they're supposed to be... Uh, uh, sorry, I went and uh, pressed the wrong button then. Uh, went and, uh, well, it's a nice picture, isn't it? Um, it's not the one I wanted. Uh, that's actually at Cool and Gadda up on the Gold Coast. And some of you probably holidayed there. and It's a lovely spot to surf, except there's far too many people competing for the waves. But... Um, the, uh, Dr. Colin Patterson, the British Museum of Natural History, wrote a book about evolution. And you see, there's supposed to be all these um, uh, fossils that show 
that we evolved, you know, the transitional forms, ape men and all this sort of stuff, you know. And he wrote a book about evolution, and he's an expert in the fossils, but in the book he didn't have any illustrations of ape men or half-reptile, half-bird creatures or anything like that. And he was asked about that, and he said this. He said, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. I will lay it on the line, there's not one such fossil of which one can make a watertight argument. Because the school textbooks have things like Archaeopteryx and things like that, but he recognises these things are not valid uh, uh, intermediate or transitional fossils, so he never illustrated them. And he pointed, in another context, he also reiterated that there are no valid transitional fossils. They don't exist. There should be millions of them if evolution is true. In fact, if you go to the museums, you find these diagrams like this showing, say, a dinosaur family tree. What's a good scientific argument to ask, scientific question to ask about this? The dinosaur, what's a good scientific question? Well, what do we do with in science? Evidence? So this is an idea. What's the evidence behind the idea? What's the fossil evidence, right? Well, here's the fossil evidence. Uh, this is the fossil evidence for the animals on the tips of the branches of the tree. Plenty of fossil evidence for that, isn't there? So we have, for example, sauropods. That includes things like Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, uh, Caesmosaurus, uh, Diplodocus, and those. Um, there's 287 fossils in the world's museums. Not all complete, but there's lots of fossils of these creatures in the world's museums. Birds, what are they doing there? In the dinosaur family tree... Well, of course, that's the latest fashion, isn't it? The dinosaurs evolved into birds and there's been the dinosaur travelling exhibit uh, travel all over the country promoting that idea. Uh, but not all evolutionists even agree with that. But let's just leave it there for the time being to humour the evolutionists and ask the other question, what about the evidence for the tree? This is the evidence for the actual creatures. What about the evidence for the tree? Here's the evidence for the tree, the fossil evidence for the tree. There's no fossil evidence for the tree. It's imagination based on evolution. So, well, hang on. But, but wasn't there an age of dinosaurs 65 million years ago? That can't all be wrong, can it? I mean, Jurassic Park can't be wrong, can it? You know, you've seen all that evolutionary New Age movie, you know? I saw it for research purposes only, of course. But uh, very, very good animations and stuff. But, do you know, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, that God created the land animals on day 6 of creation and after that he created Adam and Eve on the day 6 of creation, same day. And what did we say a while ago? The days are ordinary days. They're not long periods of time, so it's not like the day is 100 million years and the dinosaurs were created here and Adam was created here. It's one day, so the dinosaurs were created here and Adam was created later in the day. And what's that mean? Dinosaurs and people live together. So Fred Flintstone wasn't so wrong after all. Uh, people today think that's a preposterous idea. But you know, there's plenty of evidence from history that dinosaurs and people have lived together. But before 1841, they would not have been called dinosaurs because the word dinosaur was not invented until 1841. What would they have been called before that, do you think? Dragons? Hmm, good possibility. In fact, here's one of the, just one little thing. We could talk for dinosaurs about an hour, but we'll leave that. But here's, this is a Buddhist temple in Cambodia, just discovered recently by outsiders. The Buddhists in Cambodia have known about it for, you know, 800 years. But uh, 
But here on the temple wall, amongst a lot of other animals uh, which have been carved in the temple wall, is this animal here. What that? What, I, any, anybody recognise what that might be? Is it a horse? A cow? Crocodile? An elephant, perhaps? What do, you, what do you think it might be? Surely somebody can recognise it. Children, you know what it is. Stegosaurus, yes, Stegosaurus. Very good representation. So these Buddhist monks, Buddhist monks back in 1200, were doing paleontology. And they were digging up fossils of these things and they were reconstructing what they looked like. They had museums and things and that's how they knew what that looked like. I kid you. <laughs> they must have seen the living thing, mustn't they, to recognise because you don't get that just from the bones <clears throat> like that. And what about human fossils and the ape men and all that sort of stuff? Well, let me show you what goes on here. This is supposed to be our ancestor, published in Nature, the world's top science journal, or the remains of our ancestor, I must say. So on what basis did they say that was our ancestor? Well, it's the basis of a toe bone. <coughs> this toe bone was drawn from three different directions, photographed from three different directions. And if you look at your toe bones under, uh, from the side, in an x-ray, you'll notice they're fairly straight, designed for walking upright. If you look at, look at a chimpanzee's toe bones, they're curved, designed for hanging onto branches. They've got a thumb on their foot, in fact, which makes it a bit hard for them to walk like we do. There's a lot of other reasons they can't like walk, walk like we do as well. Uh, but, um, but see, this toe bone is supposed to be, supposedly, according to the authors, slightly less curved than a chimpanzee's toe bone. So this must be evolving towards becoming a human being. This must be evolving towards a human being because of the toe bone slightly less curved than a chimpanzee's toe bone. And that's our ancestor. That's the basis of the claim it's our ancestor. It gets worse because the toe bone has 18, found 18 kilometres from the rest of the material. In fact, it gets worse because the other four lots of material, because you have teeth drawn and photographed, teeth drawn and photographed, and a couple of broken limb bones, the other four lots of material were found in four different locations spread over an arc 15 kilometres long, 18 kilometres from the toe bone. This must have been the first suicide bomber. <laughs> okay, we have mammals evolved, supposedly evolved from reptiles, which evolved from uh, amphibians, which came out on the land from the sea. And so we have uh, mammals on the land, but hang on a minute, we've got mammals in the sea also, so how do they get in the sea? Well, it must be a land mammal that evolved back into a sea creature. So the story goes, that's how we got whales. National Geographic, school textbooks, the same thing. Here we have a cow-like creature evolving into a whale. The story's changed a bit over the years, but um, yeah, they've come back to cows again as being the ancestors of whales. They went on to something else for a while, but... They're back to cows again. It sort of boggles the mind a bit, doesn't it, you know? The <laughs> okay, good question. What is the evidence for this? What is the evidence for this? Okay, here's the evidence. This is a journal for geological education written for school teachers, and we have this creature where the legs are becoming flippers and the tail flukes developing, and wow, that's good evidence for a land animal that became a whale, isn't it? Look at it. Okay, what's the question again? What's the evidence? What's the evidence? <clears throat> well, 
here's the fossil evidence for this creature. In fact, what they found were the stippled bits. Shaded, see the shaded bits there? That's what they found. I don't have too much trouble drawing a skull like that based on those stippled bits, but how do you get from that to that? There were no leg bones and things found. There were no flipper bones or anything like that. Nothing else was found, just a piece of, of a skull. And they drew the other look. In fact, the author of this said this. He said, um, in time and its morphology, Pachycetus, which means the whale from Pakistan, is perfectly intermediate, a missing link between earlier land mammals and later full-fledged whales. Injuries. Now note something, folks. The Journal for Geological Education here is written for school teachers. The school teachers were not told that this was the evidence. They were just given this pretty picture of the intermediate form. Now, most school teachers don't have any reason to question this sort of stuff, and they teach it to the students in good faith, thinking that they're teaching them good science. But they're teaching them rubbish. But they don't know it. So the sad thing is, folks, that our school teachers themselves have been misled. And so they're teaching our kids in good faith, in a sense, but they've been misled themselves. So this is very deceitful, I believe. And there's a lot of this storytelling with paleontology and so on. Now, seven years later, some other paleontologists dug up the rest of Pachycetus, and when the full skeleton is revealed, you notice that it's quite different to the earlier story, isn't it? In fact, you don't need too much imagination to realise that is nothing like the diagram that was drawn for the school teachers. In fact, now, a reconstruction of what it might have looked like looks like this, which I don't have too much trouble with that. Anybody have much trouble with that? It's probably reasonable. But does that look like some sort of thing becoming a whale? No, not at all. But that's the storytelling that goes on with this whole thing. So if you had hard evidence that cows became whales or something like a cow became a whale, then it would be powerful evidence for evolution. But as uh, Patterson said, there are no such fossils like that. There's a handful of disputable ones and that's about it. And they keep coughing them up, of course, but they keep dropping off their trees as well as other findings are found that undo them. See, the problem is here that we're talking about historical science, and historical science is where you get a bunch of bones in the present that make up a story about the past where you weren't there. Nobody was there. Nobody can do experiments on an age of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. There's no experiment you can do on the past. You can do all sorts of tests on the bones in the present, but your story about the past is always a story, never a fact. And if we remember that, the next time you hear somebody get up and say, millions of years ago this happened, you say, were you there? That's what God said to Job about the creation. Were you there when I created the heavens and the earth and the foundations of the earth? Because Job was being a bit uppity. But this contrasts with operational science. Uh, operational science, where we do experiments in the present, and if you don't believe the water boils at 100 degrees Celsius at sea level, you can do an experiment to check it. And if you think it's changed in 12 months' time, you can repeat the experiment. You can't do experiments on an age of dinosaurs. So this stuff gives us all the wonderful uh, stuff of modern science, uh, the uh, whole uh, curing disease and uh, understanding uh, uh, all sorts of technology and computers and data projectors and iPods and all sorts of wonderful things. Um, we 
Anybody played with the Wii? WWI? Um, all these wonderful inventions of modern technology because of operational science. By the way, science was actually founded by people who were Christians. So the idea today that science is some sort of atheistic enterprise is actually a modern idea and quite contrary to reality. Let me just show you why evolution is an impossible process. If, if you're going to make biological evolution, I'm talking about, if you're going to make a building or a car or anything complex, you need specifications and plans for it, don't you? What about living things? They're incredibly complex, far more complex than anything mankind can make. Where are the specifications for making bacterium? Well, they're on the DNA. You know what DNA stands for, of course? The National Dyslexic Association? Well, the so-called simple bacterium is not simple. It's incredibly complex. But let's just assume that bacterium could just pop into existence from chemicals from the water that formed from the Big Bang. How do you change that into a horse? Because a horse needs a lot more information to specify all the things that are in a horse that bacteria don't have. Things like hair and muscles and nerves and all sorts of stuff that bacteria don't have. How much information to make a human? We're talking about a thousand books of information written on our DNA. So if you're going to change a bacterium of one book into a human with a thousand books, you need to add 999 books of information. Where does it come from? Where does the information come from? Well, it comes from, they say, mutations. What are they? They're copying mistakes. When you got your information from your parents, there can be mistakes in the transmission of the DNA. Those mistakes are called mutations. They're like typing errors when you hit the wrong key in the typewriter or your word processor. Do you ever get your spelling improved by that? Do you ever get novel thoughts created by shutting your eyes and just bashing away at random at the keyboard? That's mutations. That's what they're, they're mistakes in the information. In fact, you would expect them to wreck information and to wreck us, and that's what they do. In fact, over a thousand human diseases are known to be caused by mutations. Here's an example of a mutant. Uh, the, uh, the TNR mutant. Are you ready for this? It's very technical. TNR, totally naked rooster. A mistake or mutation in the information for making feathers results in a rooster that can't make feathers. Is the rooster improved? Point of view of the chook farmer, it might be, because he doesn't have to pluck it. Point of view of the rooster, no. He's going to fry in summer and freeze in winter. Folks, mutations are good at wrecking information like that. If anybody ever found a mutation that put feathers onto reptiles, wow, that would be impressive evidence for evolution. But you don't find mutations like that. You don't. But that's what evolution needs. It needs mutations that create stuff, not mutations that destroy stuff. It's an impossible process. In fact, one of the experts in, in the dealing with this biological information, Dr. Lee Spetner, said not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. Folks, they might one day find one or two that add a tiny bit of information, but the trouble is Millions of other mutations have destroyed information in the meantime. In fact, mutations are destroying us. Compared to Adam and Eve, we're a bunch of degenerate mutant misfits. You know that? We're not on an upward path of progression. We're on a downward path of degeneration. That's why we don't live to be 969 years anymore. We need modern medicine to get past 70. <laughs> modern medicine and hygiene and everything. Let me show you something too. <clears throat> 
stuff that's going on inside ourselves is absolutely mind-boggling and cannot be accounted for by any naturalistic process. For example, right now inside your cells, there are motors spinning around. You can feel them, can't you? <clears throat> Rotary motors spinning around inside your cells. This is an animation. It's been opened up so you can sort of see what's happening inside. This is a conception concept of what it's like. This generates this motor generates ATP, which is the energy currency of living things. If you blink your eyelid, you're moving a muscle and uses ATP. If you're generating enzymes to digest the food you ate before you came here, you need ATP. Everything you do needs ATP, and that's why I know that all your motors are running fine, because if they weren't, you'd be dead. It's absolutely essential for all life, from bacteria to humans. There's practically pretty well no variation in the ATP motor from bacteria to humans. Every living thing has it. It's necessary for life. The first life must have had it. Trouble is, it's incredibly complex. See, there, as is proteins, each of these components is a protein. Proteins are made of, made of amino acids. If you ate some protein like chicken or meat or something before you came here tonight, uh, then you're digesting that protein now and, it's, and your digestion is chopping it up into amino acids. And your body uses the amino acids to make other proteins like this. The trouble is there's hundreds of the 20 different amino acids strung together in the right order to make each of these different proteins. They're different because they have different orders of amino acids. And now how does it know how to do that? Well, the DNA specifies how to make the proteins, what order to put the amino acids in to make each of the proteins. But folks, the trouble is, to make the proteins, you need ATP. Where do you get that from? From the motor that has to be made from components that are made using ATP. Get the picture? It's all got to be present. The whole lot's got to function right from the start. You can't have any stepwise process by which this can, lucky accidents can make something like this. It has to be... And this is phenomenal. Do you know that so small that 100,000 would sit side by side in a millimetre. I'll say that again. 100,000 would sit side by side in a millimetre. Makes our efforts at miniaturisation look archaic. You know, you'd never believe that an electric motor could make itself, would you? Which is what this is. This is an incredible electric motor, but it's supposed to have made itself by natural processes without a creator. The person who... <coughs> The, the, the one who created this, who invented this, is far above our intelligence. Incredible intelligence. Here's another one, a linear motor. This is actually called kinesin, and it walks around inside our cells on road networks carrying packages of cargo within our cells. It's inside the cell, right? Again, very small. We're talking about 125,000 steps in a millimetre. And each step takes one ATP, which is made by the other motor. Now, just imagine 300 amino acids just happen to string themselves together in the right order. If you've got a calculator, you can calculate the probability of that happening. 1 over 20 raised to the power of 300. Your calculator won't calculate it. It'll come up with error or overflow or something like that. Because it's such a small number calculator can't do. It's worse than 10 to the minus 99. 1 in 10 to the 100. It's 1 in 10 to several hundred actually. You know how many atoms there are in the universe? 10 to the power of 80. 
they reckon. If the universe was 10, power, ten times bigger, it'd be 10 to the power of 81. So, you know, it's, we're talking about powers of 10, right? So, if you, someone said to you, go and find a particular atom in the universe, the p- chance of finding that particular atom, if you could do it, would be one in, one in 10 to the 80. We're talking about here, just this protein, little tiny protein, by a scale of things. We're talking about the probability of that forming of uh, much less than the chance of finding one atom in the universe. It would never happen. It's impossible. But furthermore, if it did happen, what would be the point of having it? Because you have no no road network to walk on, and if you had the road network to walk on, you didn't have the packages and stuff to carry around, it wouldn't be pointless anyway, which is using up energy for no reason. See, again, the whole lot's got to be present. This is not new. This is new, but for years we've known about things like the Krebs cycle and all sorts of biochemical cycles on living things, and the whole thing has to be present for it to work. And it's a complete conundrum for evolution. The biochemists say, oh yeah, okay, we don't have any explanation for how we could get this or this or this or this or this or this, or in fact, nothing. We don't have any explanation for how any biochemical system could evolve from scratch to create something like this. But you know what happens? They think that the paleontologists have got the evidence. The fossil experts have the evidence for evolution. You know what the fossil experts like Colin Patterson think? They know the fossils don't show evolution, but they think the biochemists have got the evolution evidence. See, science is so narrow these days that everybody thinks everybody else has got the evidence, and so nobody questions it, but nobody's got the evidence. It's smoke and mirrors. It's smoke and mirrors. You know, the Bible says, uh, Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Folks, this is the number one issue today that opposes God, is that everything made itself, we don't need God. There's no question about it. What are we doing about it as Christians? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is the big thing today that opposes God. And folks, we need to be active in opposing it. Not just me, not just us, not just Creation, creation Ministries International, but we need to be actively involved, everybody. Big questions, where did I come from? I was created. I didn't just happen. I wasn't just found under a cabbage bush. God made me. Where, why am I here? Because God made me, I'm special. I have a purpose. But if God didn't make me, what is the purpose? Well, according to the atheists, Richard Dawkins, for example, we live in a universe which has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, folks, if God doesn't exist, that's true. Another one, Susan Blackmore, who's a disciple of Dawkins, says, in in the end, nothing matters. If you really think about evolution and why we human beings are here, you have to come to the conclusion that we are here for absolutely no reason at all. I wouldn't be an atheist for quiz. But the sad thing is that most of our academics say they are atheists today. There are some Christians, but most of the academics are atheists. And they're teaching our kids. Now, kids are imbibing their atheism because they haven't been prepared to deal with the nonsense they're being taught at university and at school. It's like this uh, cartoon. Your science class went for ages. You seem a bit down. What happened? 
teacher said, we're nothing special. We came from pond scum. We're little more than highly, highly evolved apes. What are they teaching in your next class? Self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. It's actually funny, but it's sad, isn't it? See, if God doesn't exist, there is no purpose and meaning in life, and it's, and it's quite understandable that kids get depressed. And not just kids, adults as well. If God doesn't exist, there is no purpose and meaning in life. They're right about that. What's the purpose of the Christian view? Well, according to Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end or purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And there's a scripture references if you don't believe it. The Bible gives a purpose and meaning to life. So our purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How's that possible? Because we're sinners. We're estranged from God. But Jesus came to die for our sins that we do not need to be estranged from God. We can enjoy that fellowship with God forever. And the reason Jesus died on the cross is to take upon himself the curse of death in his body on the cross that we can be released from the curse of death and we look forward to a resurrection life in the future where there will be no more death and suffering. That's how it all comes together. So the big questions, why am I here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Where am I going? Well, of course, if uh, we believe the Bible and we're in Christ, we're going to eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth co-reigning with Christ. But if there's no creator, see, if there's a creator... The Creator gave law. First law is to love God with everything. We've all broken that. So we all sin. We've all sinned and therefore we're going to be judged for our sin. But there is a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, that came to die for our sins, that we need not suffer judgment for eternity. But if there's no Creator, there's no law, there's no sin, there's no judgment, there's no need for a Saviour, Jesus is out of a job. Do you know that a survey recently of young people, 14 to 17-year-olds in Australia found that only 51% believed in a creator. 51% believed in a creator. That means that they have no concept of law or sin or judgment or a need for a saviour. Where's the battle at for the minds of young people today? This very issue, is there a creator? Not just a creator, but the creator God of the Bible. And uh, remember uh, the Columbine school massacre in the United States and those fellows went into the school with their uh, guns shooting up their fellow students and uh, Daryl Scott was the father of Rachel Scott who was killed in that massacre. She was a young Christian lady, in fact, and a lovely young Christian lady. And Daryl Scott said this, if children are taught they came from slime, that they evolved from a lower form of life, there's no future after death, then their views of life are affected by that. Life really doesn't have the meaning that it does to children who believe they are created in God's image, that they have not only this life but a future life as well. And folks, isn't that true? We Christians have the words of eternal life. There's no other purpose or meaning in life. There's no other future. If there is no God, then the atheists are right. Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. So here's a challenge. Always be prepared to give an answer 
to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. May I suggest, before I close, some of the resources that are available so you can get involved in the battle, demolishing the arguments, and get out there and effectively share your faith. I say effectively because when we are sharing our faith, that uh, more and more you find, I find, that people object to believing because they say science has disproved the Bible. They say, you can't believe that stuff anymore. Well, folks, we need to undo that mythology that's out there and show them, in fact, true logic, true thinking, sound thinking, accepts the Bible as a true account of history. May I suggest Creation Magazine? Creation Magazine goes to 170 countries around the world. And who gets Creation Magazine? A number of folk probably get Creation Magazine. Quite a few already get Creation Magazine. What's it like? Very good? Like Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, very good, when God said everything's very good? No, it's not perfect, is it? So it's not that good. But uh, we get a lot of good feedback. Just let me show you some of the good feedback uh, we get uh, sort of thing. Uh, this is Patrick. Firstly, I wish to thank you for helping me to prove to my stubborn self there certainly is a God. Your creation magazine gave me the scientific and spiritual evidence I needed to firmly assure myself that my suspicions were true. At first, I shunned the belief of my parents, but after living on my own for two years, that's a good way of sobering up a young man, uh, with the aid of a copy of your magazine, which I, given, I was given one day, I realised that I was the one who was wrong and asked for salvation. The magazine Creation is the most educational, inspiring magazine I've ever had the pleasure to read. I am of March the 8th, 2002, 99 years old. I preach to people with your uplifting magazine. Thank you. Anybody too old here to do this? Anybody older than 99? You're not too old, are you? Um, here's another one. Kathy's mum. Some friends recently lent me a copy of your magazine, Creation magazine. I was instantly hooked. I have long believed the book of Genesis, as well as the rest of the Bible, to be the true and infallible word of God that didn't know how to answer or refute creation antagonists from a scientific standpoint. You have given me a wonderful tool which to encourage me as a believer in Christ, teach my children the truth of creation, and witness to my unbelieving friends. Thank you so very much. So here it is. You might not have a problem with Genesis and the Bible and everything, but the people you meet and your relatives and your friends do. Perhaps your children do. Perhaps your grandchildren do. And so this is something you can do. You can get Creation Magazine. It's good throne room reading. Nice short articles. You know? It, it, it's very attractive, colourful. So it's sort of things that people will read uh, and they won't put it down. 